date. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then, when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that, says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will, be, will make subject to him, who put everything under him, so that God may be all and in all. reading is taken from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Well, good morning, friends. It is wonderful to be with you. My name is Jack. For those who have not met me, which I take it as probably most of you, I haven't been at the front here at 11am yet, but it's a great joy to, to be here as we get into the Word of God together. Uh, I'm from Australia. I'm here studying a PhD in Old Testament studies in at the Faculty of Divinity at the University of Cambridge, and it's a joy to get to fill some of my spare time with ministry here, coming to open up God's Word with you. And Edward has very ably introduced our new series, and I want to start with that idea of Advent. When you hear Advent, what is it that comes into your mind? For me, probably, because I'm a father of children five years old and under, the first thing that pops in my mind is the Advent calendar, which is something I take it you have in Australia here, the little Cadbury chocolate calendar with little windows. You open, yeah, just checking. I haven't actually seen one in England yet, but good to know that that's still a thing here. I'm often reminded at this time of year, my wife, Katie, her youngest brother, Philip, for him, the 1st of December was the highlight of the year as he got to open his brand new chocolate advent calendar, immediately open up all 25 of those little windows, just absolutely destroy that chocolate in one sitting, have two hours of bliss followed by 10 hours of stomachache, followed by 24 more days of waking up and crying while his siblings who were more patient were able to enjoy their chocolate over the long haul. Perhaps there's something similar for you, but Advent, what else comes to mind? Is it Long queues at the shops in the pre-Christmas rush? Is it long evenings in the dark, by the fire, drinking something warm? Something, again, I'm yet to experience, but looking forward to seeing what a Northern Hemisphere Christmas looks like for myself. 
As we come to think about Advent here as this season of church life, it's important for us to remember that Christmas is not the only thing that one ought to have in mind. Again, this is something that is relatively new for me. I'm sure uh, for many of you this is obvious, but for me, as, as again, a, an informal and irreverent Australian coming out of a world with very little culture, this is something I've only known really for a few years, that Advent is not just about looking back to Christmas, it's also about looking forward. That word Advent means coming, it means arrival. As we think about Christmas and about the time Jesus came into our world for the first time, God coming into the world as a human, we also are invited to anticipate when Jesus comes again, when he comes a second time to judge the living and the dead, to bring life to all those who are found trusting in him. So in this Advent series, as we come to these Old Testament characters over the next five weeks, we're here to think about what is it about Jesus that these characters foreshadow and foretell. As we wait for Jesus and remember that he arrived once, but also look forward to when he arrives again, what is it about Jesus that these Old Testament types help us to anticipate? Because when Jesus came into the scene, he didn't step out of a vacuum. He came to fulfill thousands of years of expectation. And as we look back to someone like Adam, we're told who Jesus is, who it is we're meant to be looking for, who it is as he comes and arrives in our world. As we think about Adam, one of the, the texts that's very crucial, that's, I think, setting up this whole sermon in my mind, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. Paul himself sets up this contrast for us. Adam is the first man, but Jesus is called here the last Adam, the one who comes and steps into Adam's shoes for the last time, as it were, What I want us to see as we go back to the early chapters of Genesis this morning is why exactly it is that we can call Jesus the last Adam. It would be great to have the Bible open there in front of you. We'll be looking at Genesis chapter 1 as we've read. It would be great for you to follow along so that you can see these things coming from God's word for yourself. Genesis chapter 1, to start with, we're going to see three truths about Adam. You can sum up his story as the man who was made, the man who disobeyed, and the man who decayed. We're going to see how that's true in Adam, and then we're going to see help us see what it looks like, help it, how it helps us understand our Lord Jesus. And we're going to understand a few things about ourselves along the way too. So let's get into it. What the Bible has to tell us about the first Adam. Genesis of 1 are, of course, very familiar verses for many of us. In the beginning there was nothing, but then God created something. God speaks his powerful word. Let there be light, sea, skies, land, plants, animals. And it was so, and it was so, and bit by bit, this beautiful world full of life and order comes into being. And again and again, you hear God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. Just as it looks like this world couldn't get any better, the chapter builds to its high point in verse 26, these verses we read before. Then God said, let us make mankind human beings. This is the capstone. You can imagine God laying out this lavish banquet and then here he comes to put the centerpiece in the middle of the table this is the the cherry on the cake to change the culinary metaphor god makes humanity as the climax and the first thing we see about this humanity he has made is that adam is the man who was made in god's image that's what we read read it with me verse 26 then god said let us make mankind in our image in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky 
over the livestock and all the wild animals and over the creatures that move along the ground. That's what God says he'll do, and then he does it. Verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. It's worth noting the, the, the original language behind that word mankind in our Bibles is the word Adam. Adam is the Hebrew word for a person, a human being. It's the word for humanity as a whole, but it is also, of course, a, a name. We pronounce it Adam. As you go on in Genesis 2, you see that this human race, which God has made in the first instance, that's what he's talking about in Genesis 1, turns out we see a single man. You see Adam walking around in the Garden of Eden, talking to God in Genesis 2. And those two ideas are linked in these texts for us. The fact that Adam's name means human suggests that he has this representative character for us. As the Bible's first man, he stands there in our place, representing all of us. He stands for humanity as a whole. You and I are there in this picture too. Because we are human beings like Adam. God made humans male and female, he says, verse 27. And pretty soon we'll see how Eve comes along too. But all of us, both men and women, represented here because God made humanity. And how is it that God made us? That key word again repeated over and over. In the image of God. Genesis wants us to know, if you know one thing about what it means to be human, you are made in the image of God. What is the image of God? It's a question that Christian thinkers have discussed at length down through the ages. Suffice to say for now, firstly, here is something distinctive about you and I as human beings. No plant is made in the image of God, no animal. We human beings are uniquely image bearers of God. And at some level, it means that God made us to be like him. I'll show you an illustration. This is something I had earlier for the the 9.30 service. This is uh, my daughter Heidi's Play-Doh. And if you know Play-Doh, of course, it's this soft and squishy thing. It's very malleable. It's very pliable. This one's quite cold, so I need to just warm it up for a little bit. But the idea of Play-Doh is, of course, when you touch it and poke it, it takes the shape of whatever you put into it. I have here another of my daughter's toys, this little Duplo man, You press the man into the Play-Doh, and what's left behind is an image of it. You can see how the Play-Doh bears the image of the figure that's been put into it. It's a little like that here in Genesis. God has made us at some level to bear this impression of who he is, to bear a resemblance to him, to be like him. And you can see how, for us as human beings, we in some ways resemble God with hearts and minds. We think and feel like God. We communicate, we can speak and understand speech like God. And in the beginning, Adam would have looked like God in his character, good and loving and kind, righteous like God. What's even more clear in our text is what Adam and the human race were meant to do as God's image bearers. He goes on to say, they were made to rule the creation. Verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. God is the great king who made and who rules this world, but the way he exercises that rule is he creates humans to represent him in the world and and rule it on his behalf. 
He sets up human beings as his managing directors, if you like. And for some, that sort of authority, rule, dominion, it sounds like an ugly thing. As if humans have been given license to subjugate the earth and dominate it, maybe conjuring up images of rainforests leveled greedily and without thought and oceans stripped of resources through overfishing, all sorts of things that human beings have tragically done with the authority that's been entrusted to them. But the biblical biblical picture is not like that at all. When you move into Genesis chapter 2, you see how God places Adam in the garden to work it and to take care of it. The man is put there to cultivate and to tend this world that God has made. Humans were put there to steward the creation, to look after it on God's behalf, to reflect the same kind of loving and protecting rule that God himself exercises. That is the beautiful world that Genesis pictures in our beginnings. This good world, crafted by God, entrusted to the care of Adam as the leader of our human race, made in the image of God. And not just good, but very good. As he goes on, verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And one of the things that Genesis is so crucial in telling us is that Human beings are the very good climax to the world that God has made. That is an idea that is under attack in our culture at the moment. Plenty of people in the Western world think that human beings are the worst thing that ever happened to this planet. That as you look at the the climate crisis we experience, some of the, the activist groups, Extinction Rebellion, Just Stop Oil, many of these people are saying that if there's one thing you could do to fix the world, it would be just get rid of the human beings. People are the problem. People are bad news, and the less of them, the better. Into that world, Genesis 1 says, no, God made us, and it was very good. Human beings are a good thing that God intended to take the pride of place in his world. We know there's more to the story. We know that that's not the way the world is now. But to start with in the beginning, humans are not an accident, and they're not a mistake. God put us there to rule his world. Adam is the man made in God's image. But of course, as we go on, he is also the man who disobeyed. Once you turn to Genesis 3, and time fails us to read it all now, but you're probably familiar with the story, the crafty serpent leads Eve to doubt that God's word is good. He tempts her to eat from the one tree that God told them not to. And both she and Adam decide to make their own rules. They disobey God's word. In short, They sin. And the result is this world where everything is turned on its head. The the image bearers were meant to rule the creation, and instead they listen to a snake. The creation rules them, and in turn they trample on God's word. And in response to that, the, the order starts to unravel as God subjects the world to his curse. Genesis 3 verse 17. To Adam, God said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, You must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. Humans made to rule the earth, but instead the earth is going to fight back. The once good world suddenly becomes dangerous, full of threats, full of threats that make life hard and painful. And of course, this is the world that we are all familiar with. A world of famines and floods, of volcanoes and viruses. 
The man who was made became the man who disobeyed so that the world is broken. The world is cursed. And in the long run, Adam goes on to be the man who decayed. Because Adam turned away from the God who gives life, he is punished with death. As God goes on in verse 19, By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam and Eve flung from the garden to live a brief life, struggling under the challenges of a harsh world, until one day God's word will be fulfilled, and they will breathe no more. And as we still say in the funeral service to this day, when we commit someone's remains to the ground, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, dust you are, to dust you will return. There's three words there that really sum up Adam's story. He was made in God's image. He disobeyed God, so he decayed. He is dead and gone, rotting in the ground. And as you look back at those ancient words, the crucial thing for us today is that that's not just Adam's story. It's our story too. Because Adam is our representative who stands in for all of us. When you look at team humanity, Adam is the captain. And what goes for him goes for us too. Just as he disobeyed God and faced the consequences, so too all of us are wrapped up in this problem. You and I cannot but turn our backs on God just as our forefather did. So we too face the same penalties. As Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, in this way death came to all people, because all sinned. We all follow Adam's footsteps, and those are footsteps which lead down to the grave. As we come to the end of yet another calendar year, I imagine that plenty of people around us, and probably many of us too, will be giving thanks for good things that have happened, but also lamenting so many things about the year that has passed. What a year we've had. The worst war in Europe in over 70 years. Inflation energy crisis, cost of living wreaking all kinds of havoc in our nature, nation, drought, heat waves, fires, refugees flooded across our continent. Many people look at it and think, what's wrong with the world? And as I've said, for some, the answer is get rid of people. On the other hand, there'll be some in our culture and will say, no, we, we humans are better than this. We, we need to lift the vision of what humanity can be. We can rise above this. We can talk about how we, we all just need to lift our socks up and just pitch in a little bit more. More education, more funding, whatever it is we need to do, we can make human beings be better. We can do better than this. To that humanistic impulse, Genesis tells us there are big problems and surely there are things we need to do about them. But none of those solutions will lift to meet the problem that we have because the problem is just too great. This is a problem that is not just out there, it's not just the climate, it's not just the environment around us. The problem's in here. The problems of our world ultimately trace back to the problems of Adam's heart and your heart and mine. Like Adam, we disobey. Like Adam, God holds us accountable. Like Adam, we deserve death. And one day we too will breathe our last and be laid in the ground, dust to dust. If the Bible ended at the end of Genesis chapter 3, it would be a very short book, basically a pamphlet, 
you could read it in 10 minutes. That might be, that might be something. Of course, you wouldn't be here to read it at all because that would be the end of the story. But thanks be to God, there's another thousand pages to go because the rest of the scriptures are the story of how, despite all Adam's wrong, God does not give up on his image bearers. And as we reflect on his story, we want to fast forward now to consider how Adam's story is fulfilled in the last Adam, our Lord Jesus. And we're going to briefly see how each of those parts of Adam's story, made, disobeyed, decayed, each of those is picked up and answered in the New Testament to help us understand Jesus more clearly. If you have your Bible there, it'd be great to turn over briefly to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. If I'd had this ready, I could have told you what page it's on. 1,182 in this Bible, at least, which I think is one of the few Bibles, 1182. Colossians chapter 1, from verse 15. As Paul wants us to understand who Jesus the Son is, he says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Those first words there are just so crucial. Adam was made in the image of God, to bear a resemblance to God in some way. Jesus, not just made in the image of God, he is the image of God. Jesus himself is the exact representation of who God is. He's not just like God, he is God. And he shows us who God is in, in his fullness. If you want to know who God is, if you're searching and want to know what God is like, look to the Lord Jesus. Because he is the one who exactly represents who God is. Adam, in the image of God, was meant to rule the creation. We've seen how he failed. But Jesus, as the image of God, is the one who fulfilled Adam's charge. Jesus now sits on the throne and there is now a human being who rules this world and will for all eternity. You can see it there in the words that we read in our second reading back on the handout, 1 Corinthians 15. You see in verse 25, he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. Jesus is the one who is reigning right now. The image of God sits on the throne and rules the world on God's behalf just like God had always intended. There is so much wrong with our world still. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, as Edward's already pointed out for us. Still yet to be destroyed. But we have a human being sitting on the throne, restoring the order, bringing order back to the chaos. And you can know that Jesus is the kind of human you want on the throne, because he doesn't have the problems that our hearts have. He's not corrupt. He's not just dishonest like every tyrant, autocrat in our human history is. This brings us to the second point. Whereas Adam was the man who disobeyed, Jesus is the man who obeyed perfectly. In the Gospels, the Gospel writers present Jesus to us as the man who went out into the wilderness and was tested by the devil for 40 years, just like the devil tempted Adam and Eve in the form of a serpent. Jesus stands there face to face with Satan himself, but again and again, Jesus refuses to give in. The devil shows up and shows him all the kingdom of the world, says, if you bow down to me, I'll give it all. And Jesus doesn't doubt God's word for a second. He quotes it back at the devil. 
It is written, worship the Lord your God, serve him only. And that is what Jesus spent his whole life doing, worshiping God, serving him. Where Adam failed, Jesus resits the test and passes it with flying colors. 100% A triple plus. Jesus is the one who obeys perfectly. And that is good news for you and me. Because it means Jesus was the perfect, spotless sacrifice who could step into our stead and take the penalty that we deserved. Adam was the man who decayed. And lastly, Jesus is the man who lives. Again, those words in 1 Corinthians 15. One of the points of similarity between Adam and Jesus is that, of course, they did both die. Jesus wasn't spared that. As Adam faced death, so did the Lord Jesus. But the difference with Jesus is that death did not have the last laugh. He did not stay rotting in the ground. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 21, as we read, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, each in turn. Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. In that chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is making clear that the resurrection of Jesus is the most important thing that has ever happened. If it's not true, then Christianity has no point. It's a waste of time. Give up. But the good news is that it is true. And death could not keep its hold on Jesus. And he walked out of that tomb alive. And he appeared to the witnesses, to Peter and the Twelve, and to 500 men and women at one time. So that we get to hear about it today through their testimony. Jesus' resurrection changed everything about his destiny. But what Paul tells us here is that it also changes everything about our destiny. Paul calls Jesus the first fruits. The first fruits from among those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. You've clearly got an agricultural metaphor there. I am no farmer, but I take it with my layman's understanding that when you see that first bit of the crop coming in, that's the signal to you that there is going to be more to follow. And that's the hope that Jesus' resurrection gives us, that when he comes again, those who belong to him, who have died, will be raised from death also. And how does that connection work? That is crucial for us to to contemplate. We saw before how Adam is this representative figure. He is the man called human. He stands at the head of humanity. He stands in for each one of us. And in the same way, Christ too is this representative figure standing at the head of a new humanity. In Adam, all die. In Christ, all will be made alive. Again, from my bag of tricks from this morning. I uh, wowed all of the eight-year-old boys in 9.30 church this morning with a, a, I mean, I call this a soccer ball. That's what it's known as where I come from. I I realise that I probably need to catch up with the lingo around here. A, A football. When you have a football team, what happens to the team is tied up with a whole raft of supporters. The, the World Cup, of course, today begins. And I asked the, the, the congregation this morning to imagine this wonderful parallel universe. See if you can come along this journey with me. Imagine for a moment, in four weeks' time, the World Cup, the world game has been unfolding with people around the globe watching. In four weeks' time, Sunday afternoon, the World Cup grand final is about to be displayed, to be played. And it's England versus Australia. 
perhaps in our wildest... I looked at the draw. I don't think it's even possible. We're on the same side of the table. Anyway, but that's why it's imagination. Imagine the impossible becomes true. And imagine, of course, it's you know, a riveting game. It's, it's half-time. It's one-all. It's the 93rd minute, and, and England kicked the winning goal, goal in the back of the net. The nation goes wild. I want you to imagine that the next week, the next Sunday, you meet me at church, the Australian. What do you say? What do you say to me? Ha, we beat you. We won. You might put a bit more play than that. I'm sure that you're not quite that, uh, wouldn't rub it in quite so boldly. But that's what you'd say, right? We won. Now think about that for a second. Did you get on the plane and go to Qatar? Were you there on the pitch? Were you there personally, the one who kicked the goal? I take it not, because if you were there, you would be there and right now the team is over there. So I take it we can assume all of us now are not on the team. And yet surely you are right to say we won. This was our victory. Because the team represents you. It represents the nation. If England wins, then you win and you are all caught up in it. In exactly the same way, if you belong to Jesus, then you are part of his victory. Just as Jesus kicked the goal against death and sin for all time, if you are part of Team Jesus, the victory is yours. We won. We have overcome. We've done it. What this means is that the resurrection of Jesus is this rock-solid hope that you and I can depend our lives on. The world out there thinks that the life after death that Christianity teaches is this pie-in-the-sky thing, you know, maybe this naive wish. We all hope that we're going to a better place, everything will turn out for good in the end. But no, Christ's resurrection is inextricably tied to our resurrection. And you look at history and see that Jesus walked out of that tomb, that is the guarantee that you will too. If you belong to Jesus, what happened to him will happen to you. Whatever else has happened in this year, whatever other tragedies we face in this cursed world, and surely there are many. I've talked about the big national ones, but it's hard not to think of dear brothers and sisters of ours like Angela and Robin in hospital right now facing the challenge of life in this world of thorns and thistles. As I've come to these words, I've thought often of a friend of mine who I studied with at Theological College in Sydney years ago. His name's Chris. In our second year of study, he was diagnosed with chronic fatigue. And I met with him week in, week out as a prayer partner. We, we met for years, again and again, praying that God would give him the energy to get him up out of his bed and get him back to the studies. And sometimes he was able to continue studying. Sometimes he was bedbound. And for me, it was hard not to think, here is a man who has taken up the call to, to train for ministry, who, who's just so keen to reach the nations for Jesus, to preach the gospel, to be equipped for that task. Here he is, lying on his bed, unable to get up. God, why? What is, this, what, what is the, the meaning here? And again and again, I was blown away by my brother Chris's trust in the resurrection of Jesus. And he would say things to me like, if my body's decaying, Jack, I'm just a little bit ahead of you. Yours is going that way too. All of us are. In Adam, we all die. But he trusted that Jesus' resurrection meant he could look forward to a future where one day he'd have a body with no more fatigue, no more pain. We look forward to a world with no more sickness or death or frustration, a world freed from, from curse. And that is not this vain pie-in-the-sky hope. The reason we can trust is that Jesus will come again 
is because we saw him walk out of a tomb once before. That's the thing that anchors our hope. That's the thing that means that you and I can face whatever darkness this cursed world brings us now, knowing that it has an expiry date. Adam decayed, but Jesus is the man who lives. We've seen Adam's story, haven't we? He was made in the image of God, he disobeyed, he decayed. But we have seen how Jesus resat Adam's test and passed. He is the image of God reigning on the throne right now. He is the perfect, obedient son who gives us the hope that we might be perfected one day too. He died, but now he lives. That we might have this sure and certain hope of new life. In Adam, all die. But in Christ, all will be made alive. Entrust yourself to him. Get on his team. Call out to him. I want him to be my team captain because as the captain goes, so goes the rest of us. In Christ, all will be made alive. Praise be to our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you that we are made in your image, fearfully, wonderfully made. We thank you that you made human beings good as part of this good world. We lament and grieve that we fail to do you the honour you deserve. Forgive us our sins and please help us to walk in the newness of life that Jesus has made possible. Thank you that he is alive. Thank you that he reigns. Give us the confident hope of a future life with him forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.